this beer has mostly smelled. It's so it smells so delicious. It's like mm. it's, uh, I I'm going to ask you to say it because I have no idea how to say the name of this beer. Citrusinensis. Citrusinensis. Why would they do that to us? Why would Lagunitas do that to us? I have no idea. I haven't looked it up. You sent it to me. So what's the story here? Uh, It's a very citrusy, fruity, grapefruity beer. It says ale brewed with natural blood orange juice. Limited release from Lagunitas. Smells good. Pale ale. Pale ale. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. All right, well then. Wait, did you just drink it? I just took a sip. Oh, you son of a. I see how it is. I was curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this once uh, a while back and thought, this is good enough to send over to Gabe. This is uh, it's right up your alley. Um, <laughs> hey, stay out of my alley. <laughs> you damn kids. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm going to be more dull-witted than usual today because I'm I'm tired. I, mm. I think um, I think it's possible that I can't drink whiskey anymore, which is sad. <laughs> well, you can you can drink it. Yeah. You just can't recover. I can't recover from it. from it. I had just a little bit no of whiskey last. Going down. No, no, that's true. <laughs> um, I had a, a little bit of whiskey last night. Um, we went out to dinner. No and, such thing. Uh, well, yeah. We went out to dinner, and I had uh, a sampler that they call, like, Islands of Fire and Smoke or something like that. And it's, like, these mm. uh, really smoky, peaty Ugh. whiskeys, uh, which are my favorites. Ugh, awful. My favorites. And my, my categories of drinks, uh, the last two. Sours and, <laughs> and smoky, smoky whiskeys, peaty whiskey. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's that's good. Um, I do I do like whiskey. I just don't like that the the, the strong smoke peat. Yeah, that's my that's my f- favorite. So that's good. That's more for me. Well, which is the problem actually. So I had a little bit of that, and um, they're just tiny little samples, and uh, I I'm feeling it this morning. Just very foggy. Uh, do, you, do you watch Pop's Burgers? No. Oh. Such a good show. I've heard my that. whole family watches it, and we we are just elated when new episodes come out. It's like such great um, comedic writing. And there's one episode, Christmas episode, where their landlord um, agrees to participate in uh, Ice Capade show, and he <laughs> that that's the deal that he. They, they, he gets to sing his song and it gets to be as risque as he wants. It's a children's ice capade show. And so he sings a, con- a song apparently titled just bourbon. And it's <laughs> bourbon. Oh, bourbon. And what it's is mostly the, just that. What is the <laughs> premise of that show? Everybody talks about it. I've never seen it. Prem- and I don't premise, know about it. Uh, you know, family owned restaurant that barely, barely making ends meet, but his dream because his father ran a burger joint, he runs a burger joint, and his whole family participates. And it is a very uh, awkward family. <laughs> so it's like a, it's like one of those funny and yet some parts of it are not funny type shows. 
It's mostly funny. Mostly funny. Okay. I mean, it's 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 mostly funny, but it's one of those ones like the more you consume, the better they get because mm. like they build upon the characters. Gotcha. So so things become funny just because of what you know about the character. Interesting. Well, um, it's something stuff. I'll watch. I like, at some I like point. cartoons a lot. So yeah, I'll, I'll put it on the list. We have a very Often long better list. than real life, Jeff. <laughs> that's that's not hard these days. <laughs> yeah, this is, I think even this topic fits within something I've discovered I've been doing um, for the past few months now is like trying to be very analytical. Yeah. In everything. Yeah. Uh, I just like I went back and I listened to the Kahneman book again and just I'm constantly just looking for ways to break things down into um, understandable chunks Mm -hmm. where like there's no spin, there's no perspective, there's no opinion. It's just like, well, here's a thing in the world and you can evaluate it this way or this way and the consequences of that are this. And uh, I, I've been enjoying that as far as a coping mechanism. (laughs) Those are definitely needed nowadays. Uh, We should Mm -hmm. probably, which is why I was so psyched to uh, force you to read this book. Yes. Um, I was actually psyched you forced me to read it too, um, which we'll get into. But before we do that, um, uh, we should taste the beer. Oh, well, you already did. Well, I'll sip it again. I took the very barest of sips. You big phony. (laughs) It smells good. smells like oranges. Oh, hmm. that's really pleasant. The orange is, is very so well this has a lot of floaters in it. Does it on my end. Yeah, tons of floaters. Um not Oh yeah, mine does too. Not like um the new milky New England style. Yeah. Uh, where you know just like sediment. Um, where Yeah, this is this is an unusual mm-hmm. type of sediment. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a uh, maybe a pulpy hmm. sediment. Hmm. Oh, interesting. But uh the orange flavor is pretty prominent. It's very prominent. Yeah, but it's and good. The, the hops are really, really mild, like you would expect a pale ale. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's a mm, good it's very beer. Pleasant. Mm, for oh. yeah, that's that's lovely. This is thanks. <laughs> I think this is the the earliest we've ever done a show. So I was going to say, it's, it's, well, we were making a like. When was the last time we recorded? It's like, like a month ago, weeks and weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I figured you'd be you. You haven't had any beer in that whole time. Nope, I don't drink. So beer. I thought you'd be anxious to start. Um, we actually, so little story is that, uh, you know, most of this is that we went up to Vermont for a weekend. I wanted to see what winter was like in Vermont. I think we went a little bit late, but, um, it was definitely snowy up there, but one of our, our dear friends of the show, Seth, uh, helped me procure some Vermont beer. I, I would I would say so. He he rigged up a whole sleigh for you, right? <laughs> Just about. He yeah. Loaded it with with beer. And and it was it was very close to that. Yeah. So now I have a little um a little little cache um of uh Focal Banger and Heady Topper and Sip of Sunshine and Luscious. You, Just, you know, that's the real problem with uh these wonderful IPAs is it's hard to load up on them and then consume them exactly. in a reasonable amount of time. Right. And, and a lot of them really, they're not, ju- they're not just like less good. Some of them just really don't hold up well yeah. for a long period of time. Yeah. So far, um, I'm doing pretty well, um, in drinking the fresh. 
Not if you keep having those whiskey parties. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So, so um, yeah, the other thing that makes it more difficult is um, with with Alice being pregnant, she can't drink any of them, which is she's really bummed out by it, but cause, because she really likes Sip of Sunshine. <laughs> Um, so not only do I have... And Jeff, being the big man he is, I'm just one trying for to you, out. one for me. Exactly. <laughs> I'll drink both. <laughs> I'll just open two. You can smell one. I'll drink them both. Yeah, that's a little bit what it's been like. So actually, um, I've given... Uh, I've, I've owed people beer. You know, like sometimes they come back from Vermont or, or New England mm-hmm. someplace and, and bring some beer and, and share with me. So I've been paying back uh folks who've done that and uh some will probably be heading your way as well so that's good um but anyway so i have not been not drinking beer i've been drinking beer um i had the 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 vermont trip was epic um as they generally are just so much i I really am anxious to go you should really try it talking to my wife this this weekend uh so in you know one thing that has kept us from quick weekend jaunts is uh our dog right oh yeah uh, a dog always makes you um plan differently because like somebody has to take care of your dog or you have to put them in a kennel or yeah. you have to have somebody come so we always would have somebody basically stay at our house to take care of oh, really? a boxer yeah yeah you know it accomplishes two things first of all like somebody takes care of the house and second they take care of the dog and um Unfortunately, our dog had to be put down. Oh, that's such so a that was an interesting life experience for my wife and my daughter, who uh, both of them, this was their only pet they've ever had. Oh, really? Oh, life. boy, I didn't know that. We've had the dog for about almost 12 years. Ouch. So it was a little rough, but the if there is a silver lining... Uh, we get to actually plan weekend trips that don't cost us an additional like two or three hundred dollars in dog care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can so that's I nice. can see that being a, a factor. I know people who've had similar situations with their dog, and they they are extremely sad that it happened, but then they they kind of feel that lifting of a, a burden that you kind of just never know was there. Yeah, so I've had probably a dozen or more dogs in my life. Uh, the cycle goes like this: like the. F- there's the sadness and then there's the, a little bit of like, Oh, this is somewhat of a relief. Mm-hmm. And then about a year or so later, it's like, I really want another dog. Yeah. There's like that hollow feeling. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, we'll have probably a year before I'm pressured into getting another family <laughs> pet. Well, it doesn't sound like it's a bad pressure. Um, no. would you get the same kind of dog? Uh, I really like boxers. I think they're really goofy. My, you know, my my perspective on a dog is it should make you smile when you come home. Yeah. Like, and make you laugh. And I think I like dumb-looking dogs. <laughs> like, dogs with smashed faces. I know that, you know, there's this whole thing about uh, whether or not we're... We're, we're overly smashing dog monsters. faces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, by creating these weird dog shapes. Um, like, they're... Plato Fun Factory or something, but I do like the personality of boxers, and they're good family dogs. Um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. We'll <laughs> see. I don't know if we'll get another dog or not. I don't know if my wife can deal with uh, another... Uh, Puppy? Yeah, now, now she has that perspective, like, it's great until they yep. uh, get sick and 
That is way. a real so. bummer. Um, and also, they're a real handful when they're a puppy and all that stuff. So, yeah. 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 Well, that's but a bummer. But they're, they're wonderful. You know, I, I think I'm more in the mind of let's let's adopt something from a shelter and mm-hmm. save save its life and yep. see. But, uh, so, but you know. now you'll be able to go uh, to Vermont, perhaps. Yeah, this is a really strange intro to a show. It is. Uh, it is. But, you know, we haven't had one in a while. Um, yeah. So we're getting that's, people that's, caught up. Mm-hmm. On what's mm-hmm. been happening, um, so uh, getting back to so this book, to the Come book. On. So yeah, you I'm have excited. told me you should really check out this book, and we should do a show about it. But as I was listening to it, um, I, I decided that it was too. There's too much to just do one show, and that's it. <laughs> Because yeah, it's a pretty so, big book. So many of these things that, that the, the authors talk about, and we'll talk about what it is in a minute, uh, are big topics that you and I kick around a lot. Yeah. And it it would be interesting to kind of do a little bit of a disjointed series of of the topics that this book brings up, and we can talk about our perspectives on them. And, um, yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about how you found the book and what the book is and Well, okay. Uh, you know I'm a big Audible listener. Um, both in girth and in amount of time. Um, I listen to a lot of Audible books because I commute quite a ways. And I like to kind of mix up a little bit of nonfiction. I mostly like to listen to fiction, but a little bit of nonfiction. And I mentioned the the Kahneman book, uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. It's a good book. It's very dense. It's hard to get through uh, more than... I would say an hour uh, before my mind starts to wander. So I was looking for something similar vein of like how to think about problems, how to think about problem solving, kind of how to think, think your way out of certain mindsets. And uh, I don't know how this came up through my audible recommendations, probably some really good algorithm, but it's called algorithms to live by. And we'll put the, I don't know, I'll probably put the Audible or the some link to the we'll book. We'll put some link in there. Amazon. They also have a website for it that I'll so put it, in the show it's notes. A, it's a great little book broken down into um, sections that have to do with, like, how they align computer science terminology, like al- types of algorithms for problem solving, to kind of like real-life problem solving for humans. And what we can learn from algorithms an algorithm design and problem solving and computer science for solving, you know, our interpersonal problems or like today's topic, scheduling problems. Um, and, and how some of those things are applicable. I don't love everything about the book. I kind of like, I like, I like some things about it a lot. And then other things, I think they just simplify way too much and Mm -hmm. like, Oh, if we were all computers, this would be great, but we're, you know, not. Well, I, I find one uh, – so I forced my wife t- to listen to this yesterday in the car because I wanted to review the chapter that we're going to talk about uh, uh-huh. again. Um, and she was somewhat interested in it, but I don't – she was not like, wow, this is awesome. Let's keep listening to this. So I think there's it appeals to a specific <laughs> audience that's probably us. Yeah, I would say if you're really into computers and um, – programming and scripting and you know things like that or or if you're really into the productivity masturbation genre (laughs) 
that that might this might suit you as well because a lot of what they talk about is like how to work more efficiently, how to get your work done more effectively, how to not waste time, how to schedule things effectively. Uh, which I, that's our topic for today, right? Scheduling. Yes, scheduling. Okay. Yes. Um, and I, so we, I started that chapter, I think it's chapter six or something like that and got through it. I, so, so really briefly about the book in general is they tie several things together, which you mentioned. One is I, that I think I kind of like is that they take all of these algorithms that they're mentioning and then they tie it back to the history like here's the here's the studies and here's how things progressed up to where we are because you know they they approach it from a very computer sciencey perspective at first mm-hmm. and then they kind of turn it around and say like what can we learn from this you know computer sciencey you know you know looping and all that kind of yeah. stuff and say does that have any application at all so to let me- us yeah. Let me read some of the chapters. Okay. Because I think uh, one thing that sucks about Audible is they don't actually name the chapters. Uh, so I had to go look it up and take screenshots and convert those to PDFs and um, really things that a computer would not do. Right. Uh, uh, first chapter, optimal stopping. Second, explore exploit. Third, sorting. Four, caching. Five, scheduling. Six, bases rule. Seven, overfitting. Eight, relaxation. Nine, randomness. Ten, networking. Eleven, game theory. And so if you took out uh, the subtitles, uh, that would sound like a, a computer programming book, right? Yep, exactly. How, how to write effective algorithms mm-hmm. to solve problems, which I believe that's all done on purpose because then the subcategory is like, uh, you know, First things first for the scheduling. That That's basically like you're going to think about how scheduling works in a computer, like how tasks are executed on a CPU um, and how they're time blocking and how you get the most efficient execution times and how you, you, know, you can suffer from the same thing a computer can, where if you have a time blocking task that is unimportant, that actually prevents you from executing important things. Right. And they give great examples in computer science and they relate that to how we operate as humans. Like I really did like the, um, the section on optimal stopping. Yeah. That was, that was one of the my first favorite chapter, parts. which is kind of like, that's a hard thing to talk about. It's like, when is it good enough kind of thing? Like when have you selected good enough versus investing a huge amount of time into getting the best, you know, the, the expression, um, what is it? Uh, perfection is the enemy of, Perfect is the enemy of the good. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, and I, you know, they related to computer science of like, well, you can you can attempt to solve this problem, but it'll take all the CPU power in the world for a million years, right? Or you can get <laughs> within ninety nine point nine percent of the perfect answer in an hour, right? So I guess yeah, okay, yeah, I, uh, my life is like that a lot of times. Yeah, well, it's it's that is that is the thing that I find interesting in how they apply this stuff back is, you know, it's very easy for somebody, especially um, the technically inclined uh, nerds out there, inclu- me included, uh, to to not really always know when something's good enough. And we we'll talk about optimal stopping at some point. But I thought it was such an intriguing question and the fact that they break it down and talk about you know this really isn't 
as easy as it sounds, right? Even if you make it a computer program, it's not as easy as it sounds. Like optimal stopping is hard. And so to apply that back to scheduling, they talked about uh, something that was kind of a relief to me, (laughs) which was intractable problems. And the fact that a lot of scheduling can become intractable, like you, you can't optimally schedule things in the majority of cases because of the number of variables that you're dealing with and uh, things that you're working around and stuff. And I found that kind of comforting in a way that I always think like, man, if I was just looking at something in a slightly different angle, I'd be able to fit this stuff in in a better way, you know, and and then to find out that like, actually, if you're a computer, you can't even come up with a better yeah. solution for some of this stuff. That was like, okay, they, that's they good. They do really hammer that home of like scheduling is actually a very difficult topic in computer science that uh, it, it, it very quickly becomes intractable by tweaking one variable of like, well, uh, precedence. If, if you're always popping on a new task, but you don't know the priority of the task when it's popped on, then it's impossible to estimate the scheduling order of events in, in advance. Like you can't simulate that. And, and one thing that really, uh, to me, a lot of the problems with, um, scheduling in computer science paralleled the problems with like task management models and systems for humans of like, you end up screwing around a lot because you feel like there's always a better way. Like, Oh, I'm just not as efficient as I could be. Let me just try this other methodology. Yeah. It's like, well, we're actually kind of doing what they're doing with developing algorithms, which is chasing the perfect algorithm and instead burning cycles, trying to do that versus just adopting a really simple model of, of how you choose what to do. Well, and also, um, there is going to be cases where a method, even a method that you have that's simple and it works well for you, because this is something I've been running into a lot. You know, um, I have I use OmniFocus and and coming to it after test paper, I really simplified things down. But I find that it's not always great. Like I'm, I'm, I'm things are not as easy as I would think they should be. Uh, you know, cataloging everything and and uh, scheduling it or whatever. But then I see a book like this, and it's like, well, I could over-engineer this task management solution to be something way more um, kind of buttoned down and stuff. But then, and they talked about this in that uh, in the book that the meta work then becomes really huge. Like the the work to manage the work becomes a yeah. separate huge task. Yeah. So you end up having to manage your queuing system. Um, I did. I, so I wrote a lot of notes on this, uh, and I actually listened to this book twice, <laughs> which is the <laughs> advantage of Audible. To be honest, is uh, you can listen to it once normal speed, listen to it the second time like one and a half speed, and uh, really plow through sections that are a little slow. Uh, so I wanted to hit a couple of their high level topics. One was um, procrastination. Right, and that's so they 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 mention um, like what may be a possible cause of procrastination 
is is not is not something looked down on as much as we often do. Mm-hmm, right, like we're you know, like self self deprecating. Say, uh, oh, I'm terrible at procrastination. I can't get anything done. I lose focus. Da, da, da. Um, assuming you don't have a medical problem that needs some other um, way to address it, there. Summary is like this is totally normal, and it's a result of actually trying too hard to get stuff done. That it's um, you stop spending time prioritizing or waiting. I think they they talk a lot about waiting values, and um, instead you're just trying to get as much done as you possibly can, and you're and and you don't think about the the value. Of, of the task. So you end up doing little tiny things that are really easy. Um, and I thought that was interesting. They talked about the and that is, Mars Rover. I was going to say, that's funny because that does ring true for me. Like when yeah. I'm quote unquote procrastinating, I'm actually doing little things, right? So I need mm-hmm. to be doing my team's reviews. They're due today, but I should really do this banking stuff first. It's on my checklist for today. It'll only take a couple minutes. I'll just do that. And I, oh, well, you know, the review thing's going to take several hours. Let me finish these other three things quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they talk about how that is a form of procrastination that is not a bad one. Like still stuff is still getting done, but you're not prioritizing well. <laughs> right. The high value stuff may not be getting done. And, um, just to clarify, they, they don't do this in a vacuum of like, well, let's just talk about algorithms and then tangentially discuss that it might have um, applications to humans. They hit on like GTD and they're like, this is the GTD model and this is this aspect of our discussion where GTD fits. And something really struck me there is like the GTD model of like if it takes less than two minutes, is that what it is? Uh, yeah, two minutes. Just to do it right away. And they didn't say this, but it really stuck with me of like, well, that is also a way to procrastinate. If you if you come up with like 10 things that are all two minutes each and you're just plowing through two-minute tasks, in the meantime, your end-of-year report is getting done because you're doing two-minute tasks. Right, right. Um, but I want to hit on their Mars rover example, which I, oh, I, I thought that was, was awesome. really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that was the one uh, where my wife was actually like, I could see her lean in a little bit because she loves space and, and <laughs> Mars cool. exploration and stuff. Well, you want to you wanna, um, go over it? Yeah, you sure. It? I'll summarize it. You can correct me where I've missed stuff or whatever. But uh, it was, I think, 1997, and they had flung the Mars rover onto Mars, and it had landed. And I remember this in the news, actually. Um, and uh, so the issue was that it was kind of stuck um, and they couldn't figure out why it wasn't like doing the things that they told it to do. Um, and it, to me, it's just amazing. Like the, the logistics around getting messages back and forth to a Rover and Mars from these people <laughs> at jet propulsion laboratory it just sounded, uh, you know, when you think about it, pretty amazing. Anyway, the, the, the kind of the base problem with the Mars Rover was it kept doing a bunch of small tasks that needed to get done, but then, a prioritization would kick off that would say, Hey, uh, put that thing on pause for a minute and go do this other thing. And so there was this preemptive, um, prioritization happening of low priority things because it was trying to, um, get them done at the expense of getting to the high priority thing. And they eventually were able to 
reproduced the problem back on Earth and figured out what they needed to do um, to fix it. And it was a I thought it was a really smart idea, and it's something that happens all the time, which is what they called um, priority inheritance. So yeah, I don't know if you yeah. want to talk a little bit about what that is. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I interpret it a little bit differently, and they don't really uh, – they're not really punching you in the face with the point no, in, no. in these stories. They very much tell a story, talk about how the problem was solved, relate it to some broader topic, and then move on. So they're not like, get it? This is what we're saying. You're a dummy and you do things wrong. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I think to some degree there's a little bit of interpretation going on with their stories. The interpretation I have of this was around something they called priority inversion, which is right, right. let's say you have a really high priority task and you have a, a low priority task. And they're in a stack and you're moving through their sequence. And the low priority task takes a long time, but it has to be done before the high priority task. But then another medium priority task comes along and you pop that onto the top of your stack and you start working on that because, Hey, it's only blocking a low priority task. Right. Right. But the high priority task is depending upon that low priority task getting done. So because you've deprioritized that blocking low priority task to do a medium priority task, your highest priority thing never gets done because the medium priority task now is superseding it. Mm -hmm. So the inheritance is, if there's a low priority thing holding up a high priority thing, the low priority thing immediately becomes high priority. And it, that's the inheritance is, is your tasks inherit the priority of the mo of the highest priority in that project. Right. And, and I think that's interesting when you consider like individual task management apps and like models and things like that and why it's really crucial uh, there's other reasons, but why it's really crucial to make, break projects down into small tasks yeah, and then prioritize those individual tasks, but also prioritize the overall project so that you can say, um, you know, a good example would be you have to write your reports, you know, handwrite your reports, but which is a high priority task, but you don't have a pencil. So you put by pencil on your list, but that's low priority, right? right? <laughs> so because you don't have a pencil, you can't do your high priority thing. But looking at your task list is like, well, buying pencils is low priority, but you ne then never get to your high pri yeah, highest priority you don't have the thing. Pencils, yeah. Right. So that was really fascinating to think through that model with the Mars Rover and then apply it to like big, huge projects that I have of like, oh, well, yeah, I need to do this thing. But it's dependent upon these other five things, which I've all I've been kind of putting off because they're not they don't seem that important. Right. I think they had a great um, illustration of the priority inheritance thing with Mitch Hedberg's. I guess he's a comedian, and he was talking about um, he was standing in front of the fire escape at a, the casino, and he was told by security that he had to move because he was blocking the fire exit, and he he expressed dismay, saying that if there was a fire, I would actually be moving out of the exit. Yeah, right. yeah. And, uh, and so it was, it was their demonstration of priority inheritance saying that, you know, his priority right now was low and he was standing in front of the fire exit. But if there was a fire moving out of the way would right. become high priority and he would right. get out of the way. But he says like, if you have two legs and you're flammable, you're never in the way of a fire exit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so when I was thinking about that in terms of 
we've got some really, really huge projects coming online at work. And it will be interesting for me to go back. And again, I, I, I listened to this once just kind of on the way into work. And now we're, we had some, a week's worth of meetings of things that we're going to have to uh, kind of apply the actions that came out of the meetings are going to need to be applied right to these big projects. And so it was interesting to go back and listen again now after I've seen some of the things that need to get done and think about this priority stuff, because with projects that are, I'm sure you deal with this as well, but with long running projects with a lot of different teams and, and groups and pieces, I can see this priority inversion and inheritance happening quite often. In fact, when I look back at certain things, you know, it's just something I think most people tend to do intuitively, but if having it in the back of your mind, I think might be useful, right? Because um, maybe you aren't thinking about it kind of, uh, kind of explicitly, but I think like if you, if you think about it, um, in terms of just like another thing to keep in mind when your prioritization, you know, phase happens, I think it'll be really helpful. So like coming into this week and having this discussion, I think it's going to be probably good for me to think about, uh, you know, something, well, if, is, is everything broken down enough for us to really understand is anything being blocked? Like are the servers built before we try and, you know, start, doing the testing. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah. that sounds, yeah, yeah, sounds, absolutely. sounds really uh, basic, but if you don't break things down enough, you may not have the IT group building things or, you know, they need to get the licenses before that. Well, it seems so small, you know, um, but if it doesn't happen in the right order, you may end up waiting two or three weeks while they do the purchasing order to get the licensing to do, you know what I'm saying? Like it just has these, right. I think these problems have a much bigger cascade effect problem if you don't think about them early on. Well, and, and, uh, the point from, I think I raised early on of why, why I've been into this lately is just trying to be more explicit about everything. Trying, trying to like understand how things work. I, you know, coming out of last year, I felt very, I don't know, you know, the, the scene in the matrix when they, eject uh, the fabulous actor Keanu Reeves out of the pink goo pod. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I felt kind of like tw- coming out of 2016 as I was, I was walking along looking at the lady in the red dress and I was suddenly ejected out of pink goo and it's like, Oh, the, we actually live in a dystopia now. <laughs> it's not going to be one. Right. And so, so I spent a lot of time thinking through like, exactly what things mean and exactly how I do things and why, and you know, looking at interpersonal relationships. Why do I have a hard time working with this person? Why do I have a hard time communicating in on this project? Um, yeah. Like that. It's interesting because, um, I've been thinking about that too, not just for, um, not for the, probably the same, same like kind of realizations, but I think what I've been trying to understand um, interpersonally but with different people on the teams that I'm working with, it's like each approach, each approach may not work, um, with the same person. Like, so I, I have two people who I work with who have, I've had mixed results with over the last, you know, several years. And, um, am I one of them? No, you're not actually okay. not yet. 
mister. Um, now, um, one of them, if I approach both of them with the same way, like the same approach, um, one of them will react poorly, meaning that she will take it as a, and this is not my wife, somebody I work with, I swear. Um, she will, <laughs> she will, <laughs> she will take it poorly in that she seems to take my, um, kind of olive branch as a tacit approval of whatever she wants. Like, Oh, he's being nice to me now. That means I can do whatever I want. And then I have another person. Give an inch, take a mile. Exactly. That's the exact phrase. Right. And then I have another person who, by extending the olive branch, completely breaks down the barriers. Whereas before this person would be kind of combative, which would get my hackles raised. And I would kind of come back with a similar kind of reaction. And now I just turn things around and I, you know, kill her with kindness, essentially. I'll agree with her and try and work with her. And it turned the relationship around in such a way that it's like almost pleasant to work with this person now, whereas before it was really Mm -hmm. unpleasant. So it's like the same approach, uh, but two completely different results. And I think that's another thing that I'm kind of trying to... um, think through is, is in this book is also helping with is like the same, like they don't just go through when you think algorithms to live by, is they're going to say, here's the algorithm that you use to do sorting, right? It's not, they have, here's, here's the 30 different kinds of sorting algorithms. And here's why each one might be good for one purpose or another. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful. And in this part, it's, scheduling one, it, they do the same thing. There's like, it's not just one scheduling thing that is a quote unquote winner. There are different approaches. So, right. You, have you ever taken an algorithms course? No. Or anything uh, like that? Well, yeah. I must've in computer science. Maybe. Yeah. 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 So same idea. And you know, often they, uh, sometimes they'll say like, this is the best sorting model, right? Like this is the best, best method to do a large sort. But more often than not, they say, well, you know, the context matters. Like, what do you care about? Do you care about getting the absolute best sort? Uh, because that's a really hard problem with, you know, with a, it's a big O of N or something like yeah, that. Yeah, big O right? of N, where, I think that's what we're talking about. Um, yeah. Where it doesn't really scale. The larger your group to sort, it doesn't just take, um, you know, double the time to sort double the size group. It takes... Uh, you know, squared or something right. like so that. It's like a much bigger, yeah, the bigger the problem, not just, it doesn't just scale easily. Mm-hmm. It scales much worse. Yeah. And uh, sorry, bringing up sort. here you go. I'm bringing sorting because <laughs> I'm going to get to something about um, scheduling okay. and task management here. Um, so the, one of the interesting things about sorting was, you know, really think of it because we, they said sorting is so important to humans that we don't even see it around us. We sort everything mentally all the time. We like to put things in certain orders. And if you watch a kid play, like a young kid, you'll see them take toys and put all the same sizes together or all the same colors or all the same, you know, all the people uh, go here and all the cars go here. And it's just absolutely innate and we do it all the time. And they talk about how a sorting is a universal interface for humans. We see the world that way because it's actually pre-search. It's you, you, you're setting up search in advance by sorting because that's how we look for things. That's how we find information is by grouping them, sorting, and then there you go. You just go down your sort list 
Um, and if you if you have like learned about the new math the kids are forced to do, estimation is something we do. So we can really easily compare lengths of things without knowing the exact length. We're really you know you you look right. at two sticks, you can tell this one's longer than that one. You don't know their exact length or their even their ratio, but you just know one's longer than the other. And sorting kind of is that phenomenon. Um, is like, you know, this is further down the list, you know, this is closer to the top. So it came earlier. So it has whatever priority in that list, but they get at, well, you know, we spend a lot of time sorting. And I think they said something about like in the sixties, they estimated like, I don't know, one third of the world's computing power was spent just sorting. Mm-hmm. And that's probably today, you know, they, they likened it to Google that what Google is doing is not search. We call it search. What they're actually doing is sorting, right? They're they're pre-sorting the entire internet because, of course, they're not going out when you put in your term and doing an actual spider search across the entire internet. That's an, that's not possible. Right. Exactly. What they've done is pre-sorted the internet's contents based on different contexts, and then when you do your search, they just scan down that sort, right, and find your particular search terms and the pages that are in that order and then say, okay, well, these are probably what you're looking for. And then they just give you a whole bunch of results. Yeah. And interesting. And, and the parallel to task management was like, well, we do a lot of fiddling in task management too, of like pre sorting pre, like I'm going to put this in this order and this one has to come here. And the takeaway for me was like, maybe that's not as important. Like, yeah, if it's blocking a task, that makes sense. But don't worry about the absolute relative order of every task in your task list. Just worry about, does this have to come before this other thing before I can do it? Don't worry about the relative order of, t- of like between projects or things that don't affect each other. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And before I change to, um, what was it? The, the concept of interrupt coalescing, I think they called it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and thrashing. Yeah, thrashing. Uh, see what you thought of the sorting part of the book, and and if you picked up anything that you <laughs> that you you were surprised by, because yeah. that, that section really surprised me. Yeah, that that whole thing was a was an interesting. The the whole thing I thought was way more complicated than I than I thought it was. Cause I mean, I was thinking back to my computer science courses where we were doing things like B tree sorts and, and you know, those types of things. And I was thinking to myself, well, it all seems fairly, you know, straightforward. Um, but the examples that they brought up with, you know, like actual physical library book sorters and things like that, where they, they were talking about ways to see sorting and searching in a way that, in ways that were completely like dichotomous to one another, like completely different. Like, and they were talking about, you know, if you're sorting books in a library to do X, this is a way, this is a good way to do it. If you're doing it in a way that like, like they were saying, if you go to a library, if they were to have the books to be sorted just out front near the front desk, people may browse them and take them. Yeah. The most used books, because those are probably the most recently checked out books are probably in a large number of those are in the most used category. Correct. And that means most people coming in are probably looking for those books. So A, they don't need to look for them and B, you don't need to put them anywhere. B, 
because right. you know you don't need to go into the stacks and put them someplace. Yeah, that was really interesting about like take important information that's used often and put it out in front yep. where you can get to it. And, and like even in your own model of what that might be. Right. And I, <laughs> I turns out. Um, I actually use that. The, they talk about a folder sorting method, like the Haguchi method or something like that, where mm-hmm. um, you take out a folder at work with files in it and you always put it back on the left. You never actually. Yeah, that was incredible. That <laughs> you was never a great put it story. back where it was. You've always put it back on the left with the idea that the things that you need most often will always be towards the left. So you yeah. start from searching from the left all the way through. So, so anytime you take out a folder, the expectation is now that I found it, I may need it again if you put it back on the left. And then as things, so over time, if you always do this, the things that are least important will be sorted on the far right, and the things that are used most often are going to be sorted in most often used order from the left, which yeah, I thought right. was really smart. Yeah, the the, pres- the uh, assumption there is that you, your search goes from left to right. Always. So whenever yeah. you search, you always search from left to right in this model, and you're always basically sorting by um, uh, relative recent value to you. And like I love the idea, like that. Oh well, let's say you finish this project, you put the file back. It's far left, and then a month later, you know, putting putting different things in, you finish that project. That folder hasn't been touched. It ends up on the far right, right? Exactly. And then you don't have to worry about like, oh, I'm always reshuffling every new thing that I need to put back in the stack. I'm always reshuffling, trying to find the perfect position to make it alphabetical. Correct. And that has to do with like. Sorting is pre-searching. So in that case, you're in the old model where you put things alphabetical, your search is by alphabetical, right? You're always like, oh, well, this project is named, you know, starts with a C, so I'm going to go to the C section. Instead, this model is assuming your search is always by value, which I, I love that idea of like searching by value, <laughs> searching by most recent, like last modified. So you know, we talk about how we do our text notes. I always sort by modification date. So do like I. Most recently modified is at the top. Yep, and that is that exact model, right? It is, exactly. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking about what the Devin think. Uh, I always use that um, in all of my saved views. And on iOS especially, it's important because now that I'm keeping all my notes in there, the ones that I'm using most often always are going to float to the top. I'm, I'm always going to be able to find them like in a screen or two. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing with um, you know the the DevonThink tap seller creation that I've the Frankenstein that I've created there. You know um, all of the beer that that I put in there, I sort by modified date, right? So if I if I just added a note to something because I had it again, it's always going to float to the top, so I don't have yeah. to worry about it going you know sinking. Like if I used uh, I don't know. Um, I'm looking for something with a – I'm looking at it right now. Susan, right? So Susan's a Hill Farm said beer. Usually that's going to be really far down the list, but we were in Vermont recently. I had it. I tagged it, right? So it shows up – it just shows up in the list. And mm. so when, when uh, I was lo- talking to somebody else about the trip, they were like, oh, what were some of the beers that you had? I opened up the, the list and everything that I'd had in Vermont that – because I'm – you know, tagging things, it just shows up at the top mm-hmm. and it was just seems like a smart way to do it. But then reading this book, you know, it was, uh, 
Oh, that's why I do that. Yeah, that's why I do that. And it all kind of, it, it, it makes sense, which is great. Yeah. Okay, so moving on uh, from sorting back to task management, they had a, a couple interesting sections on, uh, I think they called it precedence constraints or preemption. Yes, yeah. Which was, uh, and this had, this was where they really went deep on how um, algorithms to solve scheduling problems are actually really hard. Like, that's a hard problem to solve. Um, and uh, another tangent, sorry. Because I, I just found so many little things that they touched on and then moved on. Super interesting. Um, the idea that, uh, first of all, uh, problem solving in scheduling is more than just like nerds tweaking their themes and OmniFocus or something. You know, it's, it's actually like an area of computer science. It's really important about how tasks are scheduled on a CPU, Yeah, how things are put in order and executed in an order so that the computer still feels fast to you, even when the CPU is maxed out right. solving some other problem. Right. Um, I, I found, I found that really interesting. Um, and the idea of like, uh, how scheduling is is not just important, but it's actually one of the most difficult problems to solve because I forgot what theorem, what whose um, theorem it was, but uh, in order to completely solve a complex problem, you essentially have to build a model that is as complex as the problem you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's basically an infinite loop. You'll never have a computer powerful enough to solve a theoretical problem as difficult as the actual problem. And um, they talked about how many of scheduling's problems are intractable, meaning it's just, you can't solve it in a, in the amount of time that we have in the universe (laughs) for heat death of the universe, which is, and which is interesting because that takes us back to where we started talking about this is that there are certain things that are going to be good enough that, that are, and, and I think, it's really got me thinking about how do I determine that good enough state, right? Because they, they had a big kind of section on, and it, it, they talked about it with reference to the computer, right? Which is caching yeah. and moving things in and out of cache. The process of doing that is metadata, right? It's meta yeah. work. It's work about work. So I have a task here. I need to stop it for a minute. In order to do that, I need to put it someplace, tell something where I put it so that when I come back, I can pick it up again. Very similar meta work happens when you're for me, when I'm scheduling crap and OmniFocus, right? Like, (laughs) and and they've mentioned something that I have often done. Maybe you don't do it, but like I will put in like do OmniFocus review, do OmniFocus task capture. Like those are actually tasks in my task manager, which Mm -hmm. makes me feel like I'm going, you know, down the, the, if, yeah, it, it really does feel like masturbation. Like you're only <laughs> doing it to satisfy some uh, like lizard brain things. Um, um, but, but yeah, if you start looking at it like, well, I'm I'm rectifying my cache. <laughs> like I'm, yeah. I'm putting my information in in order to execute it. Um, it it's it feels less bad <laughs> to do to do that less in that dirty. case. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and the back to the intractable problem of scheduling, the thing that kind of really did punch me in the face was like uh, adding preemption for tasks takes a problem that is unsolvable and makes it easily solved. So preemption is basically you are allowed 
to um, have one task come in and supersede the existing tasks. Like you're like that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they compared that with uh, thrashing, which was also about context switching. Um, or they didn't do a direct comparison, but uh, you know it's all in the same book. So in a way, they are. Um, and those two counterpoints of well, uh, allowing preemption on a task really does make it possible to say like I can actually get through all this because think of it as. Um, Preemption allows a new task to come along with a different priority, and that causes you to stop working on everything else to solve that thing. You know, uh, I think they used like your house is on fire or you're on fire. Like yeah. that task comes in, your kitchen. Now that your has the top priority, fire. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your kitchen's on fire. That has top priority. You're allowed to stop the other tasks and reprioritize because that now has more weight. And then you execute that, and then you can pick up your other list. And whereas um, thrashing is the counter um, example of context switching, it takes time to actually switch the context that you're working in. And that um, they give some great examples of, uh, you know, switching to email. If your job is to process email, then yeah, stay in email all the time. But if your job is to problem solve, switching to email is a context switch that's going to have a cost just stopping working on the current problem, switching to email, going through your sort, figuring out how to execute those tasks, creating tasks from them. And that idea of like, you know, that you talked about the meta work that the meta work of like switching your processing mode is really costly, like hugely costly, like more than almost anything else. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think so, the context switching thing is something that I try ever since I simplified my process, I'm doing less of that. Right. Because I, I find that I was doing it a lot more when I was cataloging everything obsessively, you know, like in, in OmniFocus, I fell down into this hole of making sure that all of my tasks were in there all the time. And, and they all had the correct task. Yeah. And everything like was the right context. context. And uh, do I check the list often enough? And maybe I need to check it more often because I'm, I'm missing some things. And there's too many tasks here to kind of keep in my head. Thank God I have a task manager. It was opposed to now I kind of, um, I keep the number of tasks low, which prevents a lot of that context switching. And I feel like I'm getting more stuff done. But I mean, you're not putting like change toilet paper roll on your <laughs> exactly. focus list. Yeah. Like no joke. There was a time with, you know, everybody when they first get into GTD yep. is like, oh, I'm p- going to put everything in this. Yep. Oh my gosh. This is so useful. Yeah, exactly. And, and that two minute rule seemed like intelligent until uh, two minutes to me just isn't like to me, if a task like, takes two minutes or less, uh, that's still a lot of time. If you're like, if you pile up a bunch of two minute things and you're stopping and doing that, you can grind away a big chunk of your day doing two minute tasks as you think of them. Um, but yeah, triage before it even goes in, I think is is super valuable. Yeah. And I think I also am trying to, and we talked about breaking things down to the, to the smallest, but I think there's this point of make it smaller, but no smaller than it needs to be. Right. So if you keep breaking everything down to say, 
you know, <sighs> open laptop, log in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Click you can window. get to that level of absurdity, but I do think actually for a while there, I was going too far. And the reason why I was trying to do it makes sense now after reading this book, which is I wanted to make sure that I bought the pencils. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the example you brought up earlier, like if I don't break things down, it's likely that I will miss something elementary that is a blocker to getting this thing done. And so that's why I'm saying there's certain times when you do need to go fairly detailed, but if you go all the way detailed, you'll never, you'll just spend so well, much time task management. I think it's really easy to uh, fall prey to that because GTD seems like a big lightning bolt of like, Oh, crap. Of course, when you schedule a birthday party, you first have to get the phone numbers for the people that you're calling. And then, of course, you have to make a list of the order that you're calling them in. And, of course, you have to know to call and do your reservation. Like, oh, that is, that's not one task called schedule party. I'm using that that example because I think that, that was in the original GTD book, right? Um, right. And that was like such a shock of like, oh, that's why I mess up because right. I made my task <laughs> plan party. Um, well, so that was re- that was really. Well, it, I don't know. It is a bolt out of the blue because you don't think about that. But when you start looking at your task lists and realize that the reason why things are still, I mean, there's some value in that, right? That's why it works because you will look at your task list and say, man, the reason why it's still sitting here is because. You know, you forgot to buy pencils or you didn't know you needed them. And every time you go to do the task, you're like, oh, that's right. I can't do this yet. I don't have pencils. But you don't make buy pencils a task. Therefore, the thing never gets done. So there's value there. But if you do that with everything, it just gets too crazy. And and that's why I've had to kind of declare, you know, OmniFocus bankruptcy a few times and just kind of start all over because I just had such a cluttered view after a while. So my my like review process these days has been mostly removing crap like things that I put in that was level of detail that I didn't need there. That was cluttering the system. And so I yeah. do a lot of removal. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, I do. I do two things, removal and expansion. So I will throw in a high level things because I don't want to think about the individual, um, steps like, uh, you know, I have something in here, uh, draft the requirements for this thing, right? Well, I know that's not one task that that is actually like, first you have to gather the requirements to gather the requirements. You have to have a meeting with people to ask them about requirements. You know, there's other things in that. So in my review, I'll expand that. That's the expansion piece. Um, but then, yeah, I kick a lot of stuff out too. Yeah. That makes just, sense. Just junk. Um, I think it helps to also, like have better places for some stuff. Like I don't put uh, chores in OmniFocus. Where do you put them? Reminders. It's just a shared reminder, reminders list that, you know, when you check it off, it, it, you can either check it off or not. Checking it off just means like quit bugging me about it right now. Yeah, um, I do. I, I'm, I'm a mess as far as that stuff goes. Uh, for rec- Most chores aren't that important to me. Like I, it's not like if I miss trash day, it sucks, but <laughs> Yeah. You know, next week will be another trash day. Well, I put I put recurring events in reminders and anything that's yeah. not recurring. Like I will put chores into OmniFocus mainly because I'll be sitting there and I'm sitting in drafts and I'm just dumping out things that I don't want to forget. And then I just send all that stuff to OmniFocus. And, and, and it's really the quickest thing to do. Um, but I, I will use reminders for 
for like recurring things. I just, I don't know why my, my brain breaks it down that way, but it does. And I think the book, hopefully, um, now that I have listened to it a couple times, well, hopefully that some of that stuff will, will kind of get applied as I, um, you know, go through my review process and we have a big week coming up as far as projects go. So I'll definitely have a chance to apply, <laughs> apply what I've, yeah. what I've done. Yeah. Um, let's see. The other thing that I thought was interesting that I think will probably affect the way I uh, consider my work was, um, interrupt coalescing. So the, the one that I think most people know is like do similar things at the same time. Right? Mm-hmm. Everything that requires email, do, context. do when you're in email, right? So that's, yeah, the OmniFocus context. But then the other idea was doing the single task. So some tasks take more than five minutes, right? Sometimes they take multiple hours to accomplish. Right. And um, the idea was, like, do that task as long as you possibly can until a higher priority task comes along. Mm-hmm. And so work your way towards completion of that. And they give this whole discussion, which to me was a little, I don't know, like no one's going to do that, which was a way to put a weighting factor oh, yeah. and divide mm-hmm. priority by, you know, value and you get a score and then that's how you decide what to do. No one's going to do that. That's too much meta work. Um, but the idea that like work on this thing until something more important comes along and maybe that is a meeting and it's more important because it's time bound. And like, you know, the meeting only happens at this time. And if you miss it, it's not like you can do it again later instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so that idea I thought was interesting of like, you know, shut, shut the door. If this task takes you two hours to work on it for two hours and there are other things and you'll feel like you're not getting those done, but you've already decided in advance, this is the highest value thing to work. Right. On. Right. Yeah. I found that really, uh, I think useful. They also talked about, um, like a way to do planning and scheduling for um, tasks that was not based on just whatever is due soonest, but um, oh, that was great with the um, CSA. Yeah, the you know, CSA thing the, was a good example. Yeah. Um, the one I was thinking of was um, if you have a client that has something that's due in five days and one that's due in three days, um, and they're two different clients. If you do them with the five day one first. And then the three-day one second, the guy who is waiting for his three-day one is waiting eight days, where the other person is waiting, waiting five days. Whereas if you did them the other way around, the the three-day one was going to be done you know, sooner, right? Then it, and so the first client will be satisfied faster, right? And then the, the next one's going to be satisfied longer, but he's going to be longer anyway. I thought that was kind of helpful yeah. to think about because – you know, it's not always due date that is the important yeah, thing, which yeah. I found really helpful to think about. Yeah, that was interesting because uh, yeah, the CSA one was you have all these vegetables and you know their expiration dates and you basically eat the things in the order of their expiration dates. But those expiration dates pile up. So that means you're eating the, the, the thing that expires last. You're eating it really, really late. So it's like the most rotten. <laughs> and yeah. instead they're like... Well, imagine that there's a watermelon in there, and it, its expiration date is in the middle of everything, but it takes five days to eat it, right? So 
you know, if you eject that one task and say like, look, this just isn't high enough priority. Now you can actually eat everything else before it expires and versus doing them in the order of their quote expiration date. But because the duration is so long, it affects everything. Yeah. And, and I, that been, was really interesting. Yeah. And I've been trying to do that with uh, some of these really big projects where there's tons and tons of tasks. And I mean, this has more, it has a lot to do with, um, and you know, the preemption thing comes up again when you're talking about that stuff, which I find helpful, right? So if you start dates and start dates, right? So if you're in the really in the middle of a really long task and it's holding up more important things that are shorter, it might make more sense to put that longer task on hold and blast out a few of those shorter tasks and kind of get yourself back on track, because otherwise you're gonna yeah you'll get the big thing done, but everything else might be late. Because yeah, you disappoint more people the other way yeah. uh, by doing the bigger thing that takes longer when you could have just said, okay, fine, I'm going to fail at this one thing that took a, takes a huge amount of time, but these other things will all be successes. And uh, that's a really interesting way to do it. And you know, I use a lot of start dates. Yes, you do. I, I, I have in the past. And it definitely has me thinking about the start date problem. Um, no, I don't have a like a really uh, highfalutin <laughs> thing to say about it other than just like the duration does matter a lot because you can, you get wishful thinking about due dates. Oh, due date is the 10th. So uh, it'll take me five days to do this. So I will start this on the fifth. Uh, but there's other things going on that now starting that impacts those. And it's sometimes you need to step back and like, look at what the churn is going to affect. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think there's smaller tasks. Like I, I manage a developer who's doing a lot of, he, he, we've got long-term projects for him. We have these shorter term projects. And there's sometimes when we're in the middle of these long-term ones where it's just like, let's pause this for a minute and get, get some people happy and just do like 15 of these small ones and just kind of, yeah, it's going to take 15 days or whatever. But at the end, we'll have 15 things done, and then we'll get back to this long-running thing. And it's yeah, often and that the juggling. Thing was, yeah, yeah will be later than what you would want it. Right. But in the meantime, you have a bunch of little victories. Exactly. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, anything else on that, or are we going to talk about the little victory that is Citrusinensis? No, I think that's good. I, I, I mean, people should go get this book or listen to it or check it out at your library or whatever you do for, for – um, yeah. You know, yeah, if, you, but, if uh, you've got commutes, this is a really good one. Um, it's it's it is nerdy and detail oriented, but there's enough stuff in there that is kind of lighter, like kind of anecdotes and things like that. Yeah, great, that are, great anecdotes. That's, I really enjoyed how they broke it up, and you know they do this thing that at first I thought it was a little cheesy, like quotes like there'll be a famous quote at the beginning of a chapter mm -hmm. and like oh god come on like quotes out of context are meaningless uh but after a while they were pretty enjoyable yeah. of just like you know famous quotes and then they would build off of that with like okay well we understand that that's really simplifying it so here's this really complex yeah. thing yeah. that spanned decades and uh yeah really really cool it was cool it was a good and a lot more in task management too. Like, there's a lot of stuff in here about uh, the randomness and the stopping one. Yeah. Oh, that was great. The stopping of just like, when is it good enough? That really affected me a lot. Yeah, it was a just, good. And it was a. I think that's the first. That's the way the book opened, and it was a really good base to start. 
right? Which yeah. is this optimal stopping problem, which I didn't know was a, was a problem. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things that happens all the time and you think about it all the time, right? But you don't actually think about it enough in a way. And they, and they break it down with real world problems and math to back it up of like, well, uh, what was it? The secretary problem, I think is what they call yeah, it. That's the what they one call about, it. well, you can either choose this person in front of you or you can go to the next interviewee knowing that this person will not be available anymore. And they go through like how many cycles it takes before you're like 99% of perfect. And that, you know, yeah, there's always something better around the corner and you can worry about that. But knowing that you're, you know, within three cycles, you've already reached, you know, 90% confidence that you have an ideal candidate, that's good enough. Right. And, and that was so, so helpful. It was helpful. And I think that the idea that they used the, kind of the time element there to say, you know, like if you had an infinitely long period of time, you can get the perfect person, but no one, like you have to think about picking, the opportunity. Picking a spouse, that was really funny. <laughs> it was so nerdy. And the guy who did the math and he's like, well, I'm 28 now and I will live this long. So the and next woman I date will be the woman I marry. <laughs> and that's literally what he said. And then he asked her to marry him and, he, and she's like, no. <laughs> but then the next woman he married and he was with, you know, for the rest of his life or whatever. Yeah. I thought that was great. That was really entertaining. Yeah, it was good stuff. So, what about this beer? Uh, this beer is delicious. Yeah, it's it's very um, light in flavor, but I think it has more alcohol than I <laughs> than I expected for the seven point seven. Oh, seven point seven percent. It drinks like it's about a five percent. Yeah, it does. It it's uh, it's a very very tasty beer. I quite like it. Have you had anything recently that oh. you want to mention? That I want to mention? Um, yeah, sure. I had uh, you, you. You've had way better beers than I have, mm-hmm. but um, Fruitwood by Founders F R O O T W O O D okay. is unusual because it's along the lines of a lambic, really in flavor profile. It's it's fairly sweet, um, but I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, I had one of my fifty fifty eclipses from twenty fourteen. That was good. Uh, oh, really standout hit for me. Uh, long Trails Space Juice. Space Juice. That's an, I can get fantastic Long Trail over here. double IPA. I'll have to put that yeah, on the fantastic list. Fantastic double IPA. It was really, really good, but it also is in that new category of IPAs that uh, are like $17 a four-pack. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> Beers are really getting up there in, in, in price. How about yourself? Yeah, I've, I've, I understand that because I spent a lot of money on four packs recently. Um, let me see. Going back a little ways, um, let me see. So a friend of ours um, at the pub around the corner, um, we were there visiting and saying hi to folks. And uh, the one of the one of the guys who works there, the guy who texts me if there's a good beer on tap, said, "Oh, I have something for you." And he left, and he came back with a twelve pack of um knee deep brewing beers and said hey we got an order of these things in um you like knee deep more than anybody who comes in here just have this and it was some of knee deep beers that i'd never had before so one of them was called hop trio a minus really Mm. awesome oh good um they had a double ipa it was a let me see what it was it was a 
it was a triple IPA, 11.1%. Um, they had a Citra Extra Pale Ale, which I'd never had before. That was a B plus single hop. Um, and it was a 7%. Um, and the other ones I'd had before, but they were all really excellent. Um, I had a beer, which I wasn't a huge fan of, called Marooned on Hog Island <laughs> by 21st mm. Amendment. Um, that was a... I never liked 21st Amendment. I don't know why, but I always assumed it was luck of the draw that I've chosen poor examples from them. Because I know people I mean, do like them. This... this um, this beer might be suffering from my grade deflation going on right now because I feel like I I need I've looked at my breakdown of of ratings and I think I kind of rate things that are super good at the time as as too high. So this is this was a C plus which was good. I'm kind of falling more into your group, so it's decent but not remarkable. It was an oyster stout which was interesting. Um, uh, I had the Hill Farm said double citra, which was fantastic. Um, I had a whole bunch of really good beers in Vermont, which I won't necessarily go into. But one of the big standouts, all right, two big standouts. Um, one of them is called Luscious. That's by The Alchemist. That is, I'd never had before. It's the same folks that do Hetty Topper. Um, it is a um, imperial stout that was unbelievably good. It was just molasses and licorice and just. Phew, Really, really awesome, 9.2%. And then the other one was called, and this was a mistake. It was not it was not a mistake to drink it. It was a mis- mistake to drink it late in the day. It was a coffee, faced in maple, imperial stout by Lawson's Finest Liquids. And it was awesome, but man, it had a lot of coffee kick in it. And the caffeine kept me up <laughs> all night because I, I didn't think it was going to have any effect on me. But, uh, yeah, I, it, there was a lot of coffee in that beer, but it was really, really excellent. So, um, and uh, that's why I used to, used to when, um, uh, before craft beer was really super big, occasionally there'd be a beer with coffee in it. And I would always joke like, Oh, that's a perfect drink to do stupid things really fast. Yeah, exactly. And, and I didn't think, I thought coffee is just usually there for flavor, but I'd never had one make me jumpy before. And, you know, having it late in the day was really a, and it's, it was a bomber too. So, whew. um, I also had the recent enjoy by 420, um, which, Oh, how's that? Um, pretty weedy. <laughs> I haven't, so I haven't had those for a while because I've been disappointed by some of their enjoy buys. Mm-hmm. The one in February I've, was a I've weird also one. noticed, a lot of the stores are not turning those over like they should be. Oh yeah. I've noticed that. I've noticed some some of the enjoy buys were on sale for past the enjoy buy date, which I thought was a little yeah. weird. Um this one was it was quite good. I had it on tap and uh it was nine point four percent, very, very dank, um, pretty mm. strong. Um mm. but I, I liked it. Strong like alcohol strong. Strong, strong like, like uh, strong? bitter. Super bitter, strong like bold. Yeah, very flavorful and bitter. Um, it was it was decent. I mean, I guess it was what I expected from a four twenty date. <laughs> you know, it's very weedy smelling. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, lots of lots of beers in the last few weeks. Um, too many to cool. really go into, but it's been a good month. Yeah, I would say yeah. so. You went all the way to uh, Vermont. To Vermont, yeah. yeah, Vermont's like. Boy, it's funny to see how these states 
turnover as far as like being a real focal point for high quality beer like Colorado was a mecca for a while, and then Seattle. Well, you seem to be um, living in one because Boston's having a revival in some. There's some really well, Massachusetts. Some, not a lot. Boston still has these screwed up uh, alcohol laws that really thwart innovation here. But there are some very, very good beers mm-hmm. um, here. Treehouse, I would say Vermont. Yeah, Treehouse and. Trillium are the yeah. kind of the two top. Night Shift is pretty good, um, but not. I wouldn't say consistently great. Whereas I think Treehouse is consistently great. But Vermont, I mean, come on! Yeah. It's like every schmo puts out a sign to sell great beer, and then you have it, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> yeah. incredible! Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Fiddlehead, Hill Farmstead, The Alchemist, Zero Gravity makes some good stuff. Lost Nation is fantastic. Uh, Lawson's finest liquids, really good. So yeah, they have a <laughs> they have a lot of really. I, foam. I think it's just you know they're all in their little rabbit uh, warrens for the whole winter, <laughs> brewing away. <laughs> yep, <laughs> perfecting their perfecting their mashing and their their dry hopping and, Drink, uh, and eating a lot of really awesome brick oven pizza. Man, that's never a thing that I expected <laughs> Vermont to be the expert in, but their brick oven pizza is mm. amazing. Mm-hmm. You should go there for that. Yeah, well, you can listen to your algorithm on the way up. Uh, My wife would never tolerate that. (laughs) No way. No way. In fact, I was listening to it at one and a half speed when she walked into the kitchen the other day. And, you know, she turned around and walked out. The look was almost like, um, just this is a thing happening (laughs) that I don't understand or agree with. Yep. But I won't stop it. And she just kind of like walked back out. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I was like, hmm. I felt bad for my right. wife because she was trapped in the car for an hour listening to it. But she was very patient. I will say that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay. Well, now <laughs> I have to. I have to get a new, a new book to. Uh, yeah. Because I did that. I did that uh, game in uh, Norse mythology book. That was great. Yeah, I have to do uh, that. That's. Uh, it's on my list. Um, the new John Scalzi book is on there too. I heard it's really. Decent yeah, space I have that opera in here stuff. too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not big on the space operas, so uh, you know what? I might actually be doing a bunch of Vonnegut books again. Like I've already read every Vonnegut book multiple, multiple times, but like doing the audiobooks might be fun. That might be fun. Yeah. Well, you go have fun with your audiobooks, Mister. <laughs> you too. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. See you.